What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, I'm John Ford. In for Kelly Evans, here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Banks tend to outperform in a rising rate environment, and this time around, the community banks are the big winners. We're going to talk to the CEO of Texas-based Frost Bank about that and why he believes inflation has peaked. Plus, we're more than halfway through earnings season, but there are still some big names on deck from pool rides to pinning to planes. We're going to get the story on the trade on Uber, Pinterest, and JetBlue. And home prices are cooling off while inventories build. Will that be enough to solve the affordability crisis? Why, it could still take more than a year for the housing market to normalize. But we begin with today's market action. That means Dom Chu is here with the numbers. Yes, sir, John. So that means we've seen both positive and negative movement in the market so far today. But right now, it's been at least a marginal move, fractional on either side of things. As things stand right now, we're 31 points for the Dow, 32,876, just about one-tenth of 1% gains there. The S&P 500 still above 4,100, but it's 4,128, just about flat on the session so far. We've been up and down again fractionally. And then the NASDAQ Composite Index just about fractional gain up about one-quarter of 1%, 12,414 the last trade there. One place you are seeing some much more profound movement in the market is in oil and gas, specifically those prices tied to the commodities. WTI U.S. benchmark crude now $93.81. That's about 5% downside. World benchmark ice Brent crude futures $100, almost that big figure right there, down around 4%. The energy sector spider ETF ticker XLE down 3%. Exxon Mobil Halliburton among some of those underperformers on the session so far. But remember, energy been a very volatile trade, so we'll see whether that plays out. Right now, the worst performing sector in the S S&P by a pretty wide margin. And then one other stock to keep an eye on today is an S&P 500 chip component. It's not one of the more known ones that we talk about. It's not NVIDIA or Intel, say, or AMD, but it's on semiconductor. Those shares off 4.5% right now on the heels of better-than-expected earnings, better-than-expected revenues, and current quarter guidance that was pretty much better than most analysts' expectations on a consensus basis. So that setup, again, going into the report was pretty solid going up in there. And that's why you're seeing that pullback here by about 4%. Still, those semiconductors, a key component of the trade in technology and certainly one of those perhaps leading indicators of the overall health of the market, especially technology. John, we'll keep an eye on. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, we're going to get another indication from AMD coming up in just a couple days. Dom, thanks. The markets, meanwhile, kicking off a new trading month with big shoes to fill following the best month for the S&P since November 2020. Will the momentum continue or have recession fears tempered expectations for the second half? Joining me now is Hugh Johnson, chairman, CIO and chief economist of Hugh Johnson Economics. Hugh, uh, so which is it? I mean, has inflation peaked? Um, Are we heading for a soft landing? What do you think? Well, I I do think inflation's peaked. We're going to still have some elevated inflation numbers. And you'll certainly see that in the July number that's coming out on uh, August 10th. You're going to see a pretty high number. It's not going to be too bad. It's not going to be as bad as the last month. But the uh, numbers on a year-over-year basis will remain a little bit on the elevated side. But they're going to be in the process of coming down. So when you get to the fourth quarter, you know, we were 9.1% last month. 
When we get to the fourth quarter, I think we're going to be looking at six to seven percent inflation. And when we get into 2023, I think they're going to come down to about three and a half percent. So things are headed in the right direction. You know, you saw the numbers from the purchasing managers uh, this morning. You saw the number being a real decline in in prices paid. That's a leading indicator of inflation. And that's the kind of thing we are seeing. And it's telling me that inflation is coming down. So I think inflation is coming down. And of course, the economy is very soft. And the only question now, which the markets are asking, investors are asking is, when will the Fed take a hard look at these numbers and maybe pause or take their foot off the brake? And you're betting it's when? December, uh, as opposed to later than that? And do you foresee the Fed actually cutting next year as the bond market seems to? Yeah, I, I do see that, John. And, and what you're likely to see is, first of all, I brought my numbers down from what I expect from the Federal Reserve a little bit, not much, 50 basis points in September, maybe 25 in November, 25 in December, and that will be it. I think about that time they'll be seeing or they'll be looking at really soft economic numbers and, of course, a decline in leading indicators of inflation. And I think by the time we get to second, third quarter of 2023, we're going to reverse all this. In other words, the Federal Reserve will be reducing interest rates, not raising interest rates or even thinking about raising interest rates. So I think we're headed in the right direction. That's the message of the markets. The markets are telling you that in time, the Federal Reserve is going to, let's say, uh, become a little bit less aggressive. And that's why the markets are performing as well as they are. But here's, what we really need. Uh, go ahead, John. I'm he, sorry. Here's what I don't get, though. Um, <laughs> a few months ago, we were talking about how hard, next to impa- impossible, it would be uh, for the Fed to pull off a soft landing. People are like, oh, the Fed doesn't know what they're doing. They're going to they're gonna mess this up. But now we seem to be talking about a scenario where, oh, well, soft landing. And yet the Fed's going Fed's to be cutting uh, next year, a- as soon as next year. I mean, it, are we talking about the wrong thing when we're talking about peak inflation? Should we be talking about the health of the consumer overall, the quickly declining savings rate, and the idea that perhaps the consumer taps out before we get through Q4? You're saying there's a lot of questions about the economy, and we don't know, quite frankly, the soft landing scenario. I don't know if what we're going in, what we're in right now is a hard landing, a recession. Two quarters of GDP says it's a recession. But at the same time, if you look carefully at the numbers, you would say a soft landing. I don't know if you call it a soft landing or a hard landing. The real issue to me is it doesn't matter to me what you call it. The fact is the economy is slowing. And the question is, uh, when the economy is slowing and when we start to get better numbers on the inflation side of things, will the Federal Reserve respond to that by becoming a little bit less aggressive? That's what the markets are counting on. And I think that by the time we get to December, I think that'll be fairly clear I think the Federal Reserve will be in time taking their foot off the brake and we'll start to see better numbers. The really only question then is once they start to do that, when will we see numbers that make you feel better about a recovery in the Hmm. economy? Things like consumer confidence. That's that's coming in 2023. But we're going to have to wait and be patient till we see those numbers. Those are really important numbers. Indeed, they are. Yeah, if the Fed's easing off because things look really bad, well, then that's a whole different issue. Hugh Johnson, thank you. You bet. And we've been following how regional banks have benefited this year from rate hikes. The regional bank ETF outperforming both the broader market and the S&P bank ETF year to date. Cullen Frost Bankers, a regional bank in Texas, is outperforming both of them. Since the Fed's first 75 basis point hike in mid-June, the stock is up more than 12 percent. 
The bank beat earnings estimates in the latest quarter and hiked its dividend by 16%. Joining me now is Phil Green, chairman and CEO of Cullen Frost Bankers. Uh, Phil, let, let's let's talk about the impact of this environment and what you are seeing from your customers. I'm particularly curious about the savings rate, right? You say that the balances are still relatively strong, um, but given the inflationary environment, how quickly might that strength erode? How much confidence does that give you? John, first, thanks for having me. And I think it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see. You know, we were talking just recently with our retail team about what are we seeing in balances? And the word he used are so- is solid. Solid balances are still higher than they were uh, pre-pandemic, uh, although at some of the lower socioeconomic uh, sectors, you could see more more stress there because of inflation, et cetera. But really, the balances continue to be strong on the consumer side. We've seen good interchange activity, not so much because of increased numbers of transactions, because but because at the average level, average price and size of those transactions is higher. That's probably related at least some for inflation. So I think the infl- what we're seeing from the consumers uh, is good so far, and uh, we'll see how it goes as, as it continues on. I wonder, Phil, about a bifurcation that I have a sense of, and you'd have a better sense than I would, during this particular economic turbulence, where because inflation is driving it so much, uh, the, the working class, maybe lower middle class, a consumer is struggling a lot more than others in the marketplace. Now, how might that, am I right about that, first of all, and then how might that play out uh, in consumer activity for the rest of the year? Well, I think it makes sense what you're saying. Just the the arithmetic of it is people that have less resources are gonna be impacted more by this inflationary cycle. And I think that's something we need to be cognizant of and concerned about. One of the things that we've done is we've helped with recently in what we call an overdraft overdraft grace product, which uh, really for $100 and under, you can get a free overdraft in in our company. And we've had 60,000 families that have taken advantage of that. And so people are using that as they need to pay these higher prices. So you've got to make sure that your product set is responsive to all segments of the market, which would include that lower segment. But I think what you're saying makes sense that there'll be some more pressure there I think if you look on the commercial side of the business, uh, what we're really hearing, though, is that the economy in Texas, where we operate, is solid. In fact, I'd say it's really strong. Uh, We don't hear conversation about recession. We don't really hear that much uh, about inflation. What we really hear from Main Street is really what's going on with labor? Where do I get the next next person to hire? How much am I going to have to pay them? And what's the supply chain bump going to be next? Okay. Uh, let me ask you sort of in between, I guess this is still a little bit more consumer, but having to do with mortgages, right? And the impact of both interest rates and potentially softening in real estate values. Are you seeing people tapping into their equity as much as eagerly? And how do you expect that to shift if uh, current trends continue throughout the rest of 2022? Interesting. You know, we are seeing more uh, activity around home equity lending, home equity line of credit, also home improvement. So people are are tapping into equity, using it to improve their homes because with home prices, it's getting harder and harder to get homes. And with with interest rates going up, it makes it more difficult. So we've seen a tremendous increase in our growth and consumer related to home equity. 
And I think you're right also about housing. We're starting to see that is one segment that is slowing some. I think our home building customers in North Texas were, were telling me recently that we want to see actually some slowdown in that because it's they need time to catch up. Mm. You know, time to build a house in Texas has gone from about 120 days to 210. So you're, you're going to see some slowness in the activity around housing, and we're beginning to see that today. What indications would you have if the labor picture is getting healthier? Uh, I don't want to say better because, hey, if you're a worker, you like those higher wages, you want to be in high demand, but if you're an employer, like you were just talking about, your commercial folks are saying, hey, how long am I going to have to pay top dollar for labor? What, what are you seeing locally that's giving you an indication of which way that's trending? Yeah. You know, what we're seeing individually as a company, what we're hearing others talk about is, is the, the price of labor. What are we seeing in terms of increases in merit pools? Our increases in May were the highest we've ever had historically in our company. We raised minimum wage from $15 to $20 at the beginning of the year. That's a 33% increase. So I don't think we've touched bottom yet. One thing that we have seen recently, though, is we have seen numbers of applications increasing. So that, at least to me, is a little bit of an optimistic sign. All right. Well, Phil Green of Cullen Frost Bankers with that local insight. Very helpful. Thank you. Thanks, John. And to hear from more executives and entrepreneurs, join us virtually on Wednesday for CNBC's Small Business Playbook. We're going to have insights and advice from experts on how businesses can address inflation, supply chain disruptions, labor challenges, and more. To register, go to cnbcevents.com slash smallbusiness. And coming up, Pinterest, Caterpillar, and JetBlue are set to report earnings within the next 24 hours. We're going to tell you what the street's watching, get the trader's take on each one. But first, we're going to hone in on Uber with one analyst who's still bullish on the stock and sees it doubling from here. Can tomorrow morning's results snap it out of its slump? That's next. And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on the markets. Just about flatline, let's call it, for uh, Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ, all about even. Dow's only up 10 points, which is virtually nothing these days. NASDAQ, just about even. The exchange is back right after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Uber results hit the tape before the bell tomorrow. The street's expecting a loss per share of 26 cents a share um, and revenues of $7.4 billion. Shares are down nearly 44% this year, but our next guest sees the stock doubling from here on the heels of a summer travel boom in Europe. Joining me now is Brent Thill, equity analyst at Jefferies. Brent, welcome. So here's my issue sort of 
maybe you can address this about Uber. It seems to me like they're driver constrained a bit, right? Because they're not offering the subsidies that they used to. Gas is expensive, which isn't too exciting for a lot of drivers. And then for the riders, it seems like the value proposition is a little bit different because the rides are more expensive than they used to be. I find myself driving more often than I would have in the past. So it's like, eh, do I want to pay that much for an Uber for a short trip? Maybe not. Um, why can they grow in this environment? Hey, John, I think all those are very valid on, on top of regulatory, on top of the food business slowing. There's, there's a huge wall of worry. This is the single worst sentiment of all of internet. The stock trades at 1.7 times revenue. It is no doubt one of the worst uh, overall, uh, you know, subgroups, you know, Lyft stock is down even more. So overall excitement for this category is way down. I, I think what's starting to turn is like, we're starting to go back to normal. We're, we're starting to go back to work more in, in using Uber. Where obviously Europe was booming. I was in Europe with my family and it was, it was really hard to find Ubers, we use the, the line scooters and bikes more than we did the, the cars. And that is in a partnership with Uber, uh, which, which helped with mobility. So I, I think overall, you have a rebound in overall uh, vacations. You have a rebound in, in normal back to work. And we think the sentiment is completely washed out. This is, make no mistake, this is not our favorite name. This is one of the names I think is just totally washed out and, and should be able to clear a 32% bookings comp uh, for the quarter based on the demand trends that we see so far. So, you know, for me, it's a short-term trade. I think ultimately hmm. uh, there's better stories in, in, in our tech coverage uh, than this story. The so, sentiment's awful. So it sounds like people should be really careful. And, and beneath that, I wonder, what are the conditions that drive profitable growth for Uber. In the beginning, it was just kind of expansion on the map, right? And they had lots of uh, cash from investors that were helping them to fund that just top line growth. And then, you know, the pandemic actually helped them with eats, but those are also unusual conditions. So from here, how do they grow profitably at high quality with a quality experience for both drivers and riders and, and eaters? I think, you know, as we say in tech, tech platforms win and point solutions die and they become a platform. They're doing multiple things for the consumer that they're able to leverage. When you think about what's happening with with food, with with delivery, with uh, transporting, you know, uh, us from point A to point B, there's economies of scale. I think they've gotten uh, much more conscious about spending like the rest of tech. They've been a lot more careful where they're spending money. They're pulling out of markets that don't make sense and they're hmm. going harder in markets that do make sense. And yeah, look, there aren't a lot of markets. I mean, I got off the flight in Santorini and it said Uber's in Santorini. And I was like, wow, it seems like a small market for Uber to be in. Why won't they just let the local taxis take over there? But I, I think, you know, they're they're making harder decisions and I think that's good. And I think, you know, Dara's making the right call and, well, and they're putting in the right in, in initiatives in. If point solutions die, what does that say about, say Lyft and DoorDash, which also have earnings coming up, Lyft, one could argue, is Uber without the international play and without the food. But Dash is really trying to diversify within delivery outside of just restaurant delivery. I mean, are they yeah. point solutions? Are they different? Lyft is. I mean, Lyft is U.S. only, nothing else, right? That's it. And you nailed it. So that's the challenge that we have with Lyft. We don't have a buy on Lyft. And in our view is they, they need a partner or some strategic to figure out how they diversify their business because there is no diversification. Uber is incredibly diversified. 
if you open up the Uber app, I mean, it's almost too confusing. There's so many things you can do on the Uber app now. So I, I think, you know, to your point, Lyft is a point solution. Uber is a platform. And then when we look at DoorDash, I don't formally cover it, but I'm completely addicted to the service. And I think many have been addicted during the pandemic that it is their de facto way they, they, they go, go about getting food delivered. So mm. DoorDash is a formidable threat to Uber. There's no question. All right. Uh, I think it's very well run. And they have, in my opinion, still the number one app for food. Brent Thill with a good perspective as we await earnings on Uber and others. Thank you. And don't miss Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi discussing those results in a first on CNBC interview tomorrow on Squawk on the Street, 9 a.m. Eastern. Coming up, Democrats on Capitol Hill have a new corporate tax plan to pay for their health care and climate change programs. But corporate America is pushing back on it. We're going to tell you why and whose bills could be getting bigger. Plus, new data shows that mortgage rates hitting that 6% mark in June had a big impact on housing demand, and that's taking a huge toll on pricing. The details are ahead. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now treading water. The Dow and NASDAQ about flat. The S&P down fractionally about a third of a percent. Here are some of the movers this hour. Perkin Elmer is the best performer on the S&P today. The disease diagnosis company announcing an agreement to sell part of its business for $2.45 billion in cash to private equity firm New Mountain Capital. The move comes as the company looks to pivot into a high-growth life sciences and diagnostics company. Royal Caribbean, the worst performer on the S&P today. The company saying it'll offer $900 million in convertible bonds due in 2025 that it will use to refinance existing debt. Celsius Holdings shooting higher after announcing a long-term distribution agreement with Pepsi, which will also make a $550 million cash investment in the company. And DraftKings getting a nice bump after Massachusetts passed an online sports betting bill earlier today. That bill expected to be signed into law by the governor this week. Up next, Pinterest has missed on revenues only once over the past three years. The street is focused on Forex when it comes to Caterpillar's results. And will JetBlue's bid for Spirit actually take flight? We will get the action, the story, and the trade on all three coming up in Earnings Exchange. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. 30% of the S&P 500 reporting this week, and we've got the action, the story, and the trade on three key names. Let's start 
with Pinterest. Shares are down 70% from their 52-week high. Analysts are going to be watching for insight into advertising revenue, daily active user trends, and also the company's first report after announcing a CEO change. Julia Borston has the story on Pinterest, and Ari Wald has the trade. He's head of technical analysis at Oppenheimer. Julia, you first. Well, look, I think the key question here is how much is Pinterest hurt by that overall decline in advertising that we heard a lot about from from both Meta as well as Snap and Twitter. So the question is, how bad is that ad pullback for Pinterest? The fact that it's one of the smaller platforms, does that mean it is um, even worse positioned to navigate those challenges? The other question is engagement. This is a stock that really benefited during the pandemic um, from massive growth in users, but it has seen a decline engagement in the recent quarters. Um, and, and last quarter, they saw monthly active users decrease 9% year over year. So the question for this quarter is, is the user number flat or is it down slightly from last quarter? And then the final question is, what are we going to hear from this new CEO? He is well-versed in the world of e-commerce, and a lot of investors think this is a great opportunity for Pinterest to lean more into its relationship with these brands, the fact that people are pinning items because they want to buy them, and really transitioning this from being an advertising-focused platform to being one that really gets people to buy and transact on Pinterest itself, John. Yeah, attribution, a big deal. That's why Amazon's ad business seems so strong. But Ari, that's my concern when I look at Pinterest. I mean, it dropped like a lot of uh, ad-dependent companies on Snap's results. But unlike Snap, it's bounced back. Has it bounced too much? Uh, we, we think there's some additional upside here. I, I think Pinterest really stands to benefit as a, a rotation idea as market conditions firm, we are of the market recovery camp. And we recently published a study showing that the initial stages of a new bull market are typically driven by the prior bear cycles, biggest laggards, and that's gonna include Pinterest. Here's a stock that retraced most of its 2020 run up. And against a still negative news cycle has generally stopped going down since May. It's been building a base. Uh, so I think the trade here is as long as the stock is above $17 support, that's the recent lows it's been holding, uh, we see additional counter trend upside into the mid to upper $20 range. Interesting. Julia, which company is this more like? Is it more like Snap with the auction-based exposure and the performance ad exposure, or is it more like Google's search business and Amazon's advertising business, which is much more attributable to intent? Look, the benefit that Google has is not just the fact that search is so much about intent, but Google has such a massive established business. I think Pinterest would, would like to be more like Google, but it has a long way to go before it can have that kind of measurable intent. And it is certainly, certainly nowhere like Google when it comes to scale. I think, though, that's the opportunity for the new CEO, Bill Reddy, in terms of driving it to be more about that intent and driving purchase activity on or through the platform. But for for now, it is a smaller player, more similar to a snap. Well, we'll see which one it looks more like after hours. Uh, thank you, Julia. Next up, Caterpillar. Shares are down only 5% this year as traders wait for updates on any foreign exchange and supply chain headwinds. The street will also be looking for any construction industry outlook from this industrial giant. Seema Modi has the story on Caterpillar. Seema. 
Hey, John. Well, as you know, this is widely seen as a name that's sort of an economic bellwether. And with the data sort of all over the place, Caterpillar's numbers and orders related to big machinery and equipment will be in high focus. We heard from ExxonMobil last week talking about increasing capital expenditures. So Caterpillar's sales of oil production equipment tied to drilling, pipelines, that could provide good foresight as to whether production is in fact picking up and in which markets. We're looking at the stock up about 10% in the past one month. It's best month in four. Uh, but the stronger dollar, as you say, will be a key headwind. UBS points out that Caterpillar generates about 57% of its revenue outside the U.S. The other big topic will be China. John, the picture out of China has been less clear. You had Apple last week say that iPhone sales did come in better than expected despite the lockdowns there. But then Adidas in the retail apparel space cut its outlook because of weakness in China. So what Caterpillar says about its growth in that market, it makes about five to 10% of its sales there, I think will be really key. It'll give us a better picture of what's actually happening on the ground. Huh, Seema, thanks. Ari, what would a surprisingly good quarter look like from Caterpillar and how likely is that to happen? Well, looking at how the stocks traded, I think it exhausted a lot of its downside into that July low our, our issue here, John, is just we're just unsure about the upside. And here's why uh, we're expecting a growth led recovery in the market, but we're not necessarily expecting one to be driven by reflationary themes like Caterpillar. Uh, our take is the macro trends resemble 2019 very closely. And if we think back to that bull market, Caterpillar participated, but it was a much bumpier uh, path. To, to those gains with mm. some uh, knee-jerk reactions along the way. So if I'm a trader here, I'm, I'm considering about lightening up on Caterpillar on strength. There's a, a gap at $212 that I think is going to act as some resistance and uh, I'd be selling it into strength. Uh, Seema, quickly, how much are interest rates seen as impacting Caterpillar? I don't know from the analyst notes, what have you, giving that, you know, you don't buy this equipment for cheap. No, you certainly don't. And many of its customers, they take out loans to fund the projects, their real estate projects, their housing projects, and all the different equipment they need to buy from Caterpillar, including excavators. So absolutely a stock and a sector, industrials in general, that are sensitive to rising interest rates. But this is also a company that works on longer term projects. So five to 10 years out that could make it a little bit less prone to uh, rising rates. We'll have to see tomorrow, John. Yeah, especially if you think the Fed's going to be cutting next year. <laughs> Seema, thank you. And a quick programming note, the Caterpillar CEO will join Squawk on the Street tomorrow morning after those results at 9 a.m. Eastern time. You won't want to miss that. Now, finally, JetBlue. Shares are down 40% this year as investors seem skeptical of the Spirit takeover bid winning regulatory approval. Investors also listening for any insight into consumer travel trends heading into the fall. Phil LeBeau has the story on JetBlue. Hey, Phil. Hey, John, a few things that people will be looking at. The obvious question that is going to come up during the conference call with analysts, where things stand in terms of the progression towards talking with regulators, getting the Spirit uh, merger approved by Spirit shareholders, etc. We know that those calls will coming up. But the business itself, in terms of the airline profitability level. Where is it relative to other airlines? They had a really bumpy May and June for JetBlue. So that's going to get a fair amount of attention. And what type of growth are they seeing in their strongest markets? We're talking about those routes down to Florida, the transcontinental, which has been growing. And obviously, 
They've added service over the last couple of years to the U.K. Those will all be in focus during this uh, earnings report. And the conference call, yes, there will be plenty of questions, not only about the Spirit merger, but also the Northeast Alliance with American Airlines. Remember, the trial with the DOJ trying to unwind that uh, alliance between American and uh, JetBlue, that starts in September. So it's right around the corner. Lots to be discussed during the conference call. Hmm. Okay, well, Ari, the, the negative take on JetBlue Spirit was that really what JetBlue wanted to do was keep Frontier from getting it, right? They didn't really want Spirit to begin with. So where JetBlue is priced right now, does it particularly need Spirit or has it already gotten the benefit uh, of this situation by Frontier not having it? Is there downside here regulatorily or, uh, or what? I think for the long term, yes. Listen, this is a beta trade. If we're right about our market recovery scenario here, airlines are going to be able to move a lot in a very short amount of time. And that includes JetBlue, which is near its uh, cycle lows and quite extended below its 200-day average. But this is a rental. You need a tight stop. And you're going to have to sell it as well because I think there's a ceiling out there. What gives us concern in our work for the long term is that the stock recently fell below its July of 2008. 2008 relative low versus the market versus the S&P 500. That indicates to us that this is still a trend uh, that long term underperformance is still intact. But listen, it can move a lot in a short amount of time. It's trying to build a base at eight dollars. So you might be able to squeeze out a trade into 10 um, just from a very near term basis. Phil, relative to other airlines, how healthy is JetBlue operationally when you're looking at you know, pilot relations and you're looking at uh, how much they reduced a lot of these airlines, their staff, uh, and then tried to increase volume mm-hmm. and have run into trouble. Um, are they better, worse positioned or about, you know, middle ground? I'd say they're about the same. John, I think they're in the same boat as every other airline out there. Now, look, not all airlines are the same. Some are better run than others. And when you talk with analysts, they clearly have a pecking order in terms of who they think are the most efficient of the airlines versus the least efficient of the airlines. But JetBlue, in terms of operational challenges, whether it's staffing, whether it's adding too many routes and then not being able to uh, meet the, the, the demand that was out there in June, they're about where everybody else in the industry is at. Okay. Well, uh, investors know what they need to know now, or at least more of what they need to know to get ready for those reports. Phil, Ari, thank you. Now coming up, the Democrats' new health care and climate package could come at a big cost to corporate America. How big? Some estimate it could be up to $300 billion. We're going to look at why and which sectors could get hit the hardest. Speaking of costs, the Starbucks union is asking the company to extend wage hikes and benefits to unionized stores. What the company says, it's not that simple. The latest on this breaking drama is next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The deal reached by Senators Manchin and Schumer last week on health care and climate. Well, that deal needs somebody to pay for it, and Democrats are banking on corporations to foot the bill to the tune of $300 billion. Elon Moy joins me now with the proposed corporate tax and how it would work. Elon? Yeah, John, about 150 to 200 of the biggest companies in America would be affected by this new tax. It applies to those with a billion dollars in profits or more, and they'd be required to pay a minimum rate of 15%. Government data shows the measure would raise $313 billion over a decade, and half of the companies affected are in the manufacturing sector. Now, that's because they're more likely to have large capital expenditures 
that currently can be used to bring down their tax liability. The National Association of Manufacturers forecasts that creating this new 15% minimum rate could cost the economy 218,000 jobs and reduce wages by $17 billion. But Democratic Senator Joe Manchin defended the measure today as putting fairness back in the system, and he accused big companies of failing to reinvest when their taxes went down. They have had massive profits, and it's been the low, least amount of capital reinvestment in the last two years. So don't use that excuse on me when you've got nothing at all to show for it. The other swing Democrat, Senator Kirsten Sinema, has supported this tax in the past. Unclear if she backs it now, though. John, without her blessing, this whole package could still fall apart. Back over to you. Which I guess is why it's unclear whether she backs it now, because she's got an enormous amount of leverage. But when I saw this last week, Elon, I was like, this, this is like a, a trick play or a two-point conversion. In I don't know when the last time was in politics with so much money on the line I saw something like this happen. I mean, there, there have been all of this talk about how Manchin and Cinema didn't sound like Democrats anymore. In, in that clip, he sounded like a Democrat. What happened? Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing that they were able to do is they were able to use the funds that are coming from this tax increase or this closing of a loophole, as Democrats call it, as well as uh, closing the capital gains loophole and the drug pricing negotiation. They're able to use all that money and they want to put a substantial portion of it toward reducing the deficit. That's been a big priority for Manchin all along. He got some assurances that even if this doesn't necessarily reduce inflation, it's not going to accelerate it. So that made him a little more comfortable with signing on to this agreement. But yeah, John, you and me both, we were both surprised. All of Washington was surprised that they finally were able to seal this deal. We'll see if cinema's on board as well. And the CHIPS Act funding. I mean, that was like running back the kick, a one, you know, the kickoff, yeah. and then doing an onside kick. Anyway, enough of the football analogies, Elon, <laughs> thank you. Let's get to another brewing corporate fight. Haha. <laughs> CNBC obtaining a letter from the Starbucks union to CEO Howard Schultz, alleging the company is illegally withholding certain perks from unionized stores. Kate Rogers joins me now with those details. Kate? Hey, John. Well, Starbucks Workers United says it's waiving its right to bargain with the coffee giant over enhanced benefits that are kicking in at stores across the country today. The union sent a letter to CEO Howard Schultz that we've obtained that says it has no objections to these benefits and that the coffee giant is legally required to offer them to stores that have unionized if there's no objection. It says, quote, Workers United refuses to stand by while Starbucks cynically promises new benefits only to non-unionized workers and withholds them from our stores. It's from Lynn Fox, president of Workers United, to Schultz sent mid last month, adding that this does not remove the company's obligation to bargain over other items under federal law. Starbucks announced enhanced benefits for stores in May, including higher raises for tenured workers, pay increases for managers, and more to come later this year, including store upgrades and credit card tipping. It has maintained that it cannot legally extend these to stores that have organized without formally bargaining over them. Schultz has promised to invest more in workers and suspended the company's buyback, remember, on his first day to put that money toward improving conditions. Smaller pay raises that were announced last October will still be available to union stores, just not these enhanced benefits that the union is seeking for the 200 plus stores that have voted yes on the union. John, back over to you. Well, Kate, it seems to me like if you're Starbucks, you like this, right? Like you don't want more stores to unionize. So you're going to give the benefits to the stores that haven't unionized and, and wait out as long as possible uh, on the unionized stores. 
hey, the bargaining, you know, it's one thing when it looks like it's going to work for you, but here's a different kind of situation. Uh, I, I don't know if you've been talking to legal experts in this, but who has the more defensible position if, if you've been hearing? Is it Starbucks? Is it the union? Are they going to have to give them these enhanced benefits eventually? Well, we've been hearing kind of a gray area here. So the union has already filed two unfair labor practice charges against Starbucks that are tied to these benefits. And its lawyer said it's exploring further options. And as I said, labor lawyers kind of said this is a gray area. Typically, new benefits have to be bargained over. But given that the union said here it does not object, the benefits could potentially be extended. So we'll see where it goes from here. But they also kind of added, you know, what is the context under which Starbucks is extending these benefits? Is it because it's a tight labor market and they want to keep workers happy? or is it being done to chill unionizing, as you said? <laughs> and that would be something that's up to the NLRB to decide. So it's kind of a tough call, and it could wind up getting escalated and, and end up there. Well, but either way, there's, there's benefit, I can see, on one side at least, to drawing this out a bit. <laughs> Rogers, thank you. Thank up you. next, mortgage rates sitting at just over 5%, and higher rates are cooling home price growth. But with affordability at record lows already, has a new floor been put into the market? We will discuss after this quick break. The Exchange is back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. Yet another sign of a cooling housing market. According to housing analytics firm Black Knight, home price growth slowed at the fastest rate on record in June, sliding 2% from the previous month to 17.3%. Now, to put that into perspective, during the 2006 downturn, the biggest single-month decline in appreciation was just above 1%. Joining me with more is Andy Walden, Vice President of Enterprise Research at Black Knight. Andy, uh, in a way, that that sounds impossible, that just 1%, the the slowdown in growth uh, back in 2006. What's different about what we're seeing here? Yeah, I mean... Every everything right. Uh, there's a lot different with what's going on right now, and certainly we were at much higher rates of home price growth heading in. So I think to to be expected, right, with with rates rising as quickly as they could or as they have, that you're going to see a slowdown in prices. But certainly seeing the, the the market slam on the brakes very very quickly here through the summer months. So what happens to people who bought at the peak? Yeah, and I mean, really, when you look at it, about one in ten mortgage properties has been bought over the last year. And the, and the dynamics are going to be very, very different depending on where you bought. Right, We're seeing some areas of the country slow and, and even pullbacks in prices in some areas of the country, while other areas of the country remain extremely hot. You're also seeing larger down payments and, and lower LTVs than you traditionally do. Right, So I think it's going to vary significantly depending on where you bought, at what time you bought, how big of a down payment you put on your home, uh, among other factors. How does this change the behavior of existing homeowners, right? We were just talking early in the program with a local bank in Texas saying that people are taking out more home equity loans and doing work on their existing home because, hey, it doesn't look great to buy something else. Is that what tends to happen more broadly? It does, right? And the the dynamics around equity are kind of interesting, right? I think you'll see more of a shift from the cash out market that we had seen very, very heavy last year to more home equity lines of credit, given the rate dynamic. You're also seeing some equity pullbacks, some early signs of that here in Q2, especially in those West Coast markets. We saw four of the five most equity rich markets actually lose equity here in the second quarter. And so I think you're going to see a lot of movement going on from an equity standpoint, right? Some borrowers going out there that have locked in very low first lien rates to refinance their home. And maybe other areas of the country are going to see a pull back as, as prices pull off peak levels. Is this the Fed, you think? Uh, we, we haven't seen this kind of a slowdown in growth in a long time, but we haven't seen this pace of rate hikes, 275 basis point hikes in a row in some time either. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely it is, right? And this is really the intended effect of the Fed. They wanted to slow down the economy. I think they had an eye specifically on the housing market. So this absolutely is a result of, of rising interest rates. The other thing that it's a factor of, though, is, is the Fed's policies during the pandemic that pushed rates down to record low levels mm. where we saw all of this home price growth. And so now we're seeing a little reversing, of course, because of how strong home price growth has been in recent years. And then the, the secondary effect of rising interest rates and those couple together are really pushing us to the lowest level of affordability we've seen in, in 40 years. All right, you pump the brakes, the car slows down. Andy Walden with Black Knight, thank you. Thank you. Coming up, this cryptocurrency soared last month, climbing more than 60%. What's driving gains and why its climb could continue next. Welcome back. The price of Ether is lower today, but climbing more than 60% in July. Kate Rooney joins me now with what's driving that crypto higher. Kate. Hey, John. Yeah, we usually talk about Bitcoin, but the world's second largest cryptocurrency had an even bigger month. You mentioned that rally for Ether. It was up more than 60 percent, almost 70 percent for July versus about a 30 percent jump for Bitcoin. Both are still down for the year and struggling to get back to those November highs. The optimism around Ether, though, is really specific to that cryptocurrency. Ether is the coin tied to the Ethereum network, which is used to build things like NFTs, for example. It's in the process of what you can think of as a software upgrade. The way it's run or validated, as some people call it, will change. It's also supposed to be faster, and the way new crypto is created will become more energy efficient. Crypto's carbon footprint has been one of the biggest criticisms. And uh, that date for what people are calling the merge is now on track for September 19th, but the date has been pushed back before, so there's still a little bit of skepticism around that. Either way, though, crypto investors are pouring into this trade ahead of that date. The number of addresses and spot volume jumped in July. You can also see some of that bullishness playing out in derivatives markets. This chart here from Glassnode shows what Fundstrat calls a parabolic increase in open interest for Ethereum. It's getting close to that high we saw back in November. And the majority of those are call options or the option to buy. The September and December expiration dates are especially popular with traders, with crypto investors really hoping for a sustained rebound in Ethereum after a pretty tough year for that cryptocurrency. John, back to you. Kate, weird though, uh, May into June, uh, Ethereum to Bitcoin, right, uh, had its biggest drop uh, in a long time. So the, the value of Ethereum versus Bitcoin. So and now it's popping back up. It's still not where it was in early May. So it sounds like uh, maybe people should be careful. Absolutely. It's, well, it's seen as one of the more speculative coins. Bitcoin really, within cryptocurrency, emerged as a little bit of a safe haven, that it, it seemed to be more stable. It seems like people are <laughs> more comfortable taking on more risk at this point. Consumer okay. sentiment around crypto is increasing. So you often see watch out Ethereum. For, yeah, definitely Dogecoin. watch out. But the smaller cryptocurrencies, when those rally, it often means a little bit more risk taking. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.